0: you've realized that if you help the most marginalized population, then all populations benefit.
1: Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation. Because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Welcome, everyone, all our listeners and all our viewers to the Race to Social Justice podcast series. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm your host, co-host, one of the co-hosts here, Kiva White. And I am the Black guy, as you can see.
2: And I'm John Kepner. I'm the White guy. And uh, Kiva and I share a love for the letter K. K for Kiva, K for Kepner, and K for the knowledge factor. And tonight, K for Kutztown University.
1: Yes, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, as all of you know, our our, the goal of our podcast is really to promote racial and social equity and justice through honest and even sometimes very difficult dialogue. And we call these conversations courageous conversations. And my dear friend John and I have found uh, our discussions on these topics with each other have deepened over the years. And we have gained a a greater respective understanding of racism and our personal responsibilities in that regard on how to address these issues. And that has led us to uh, invite other guests uh, to share their thoughts and their honest experiences and learning uh, around racial justice, uh, racial equity and inclusion. And we hope that these conversations will help our listeners and even those uh, that we invite as to be guests uh, along their personal journey towards making the world a better place. And that's really what these conversations is all about, to get us all comfortable to be able to talk about these issues that are impacting our society today. So John, with that, who who are our guests for tonight?
2: Well, I'm really delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Warren Hilton, who is a uh, executive at Kutztown um, University up near Allentown uh, and uh, happens to also be the chair of the board of a foundation called Health Spark Foundation. Mm. And um, also Russ Johnson, who for 20 years now has been the uh, president and CEO of Health Spark Foundation. And by way of introduction because we're going to talk a little bit about the foundation, uh, it's, it's a foundation, a so-called conversion Foundation. Mm. When um, hospital nonprofit hospitals are sold, as the one in Lansdale, near where we live, was sold uh, 20 plus years ago, um, the proceeds uh, are put into a foundation to benefit the community, and um, and in this case, it's about a over 40 million dollar uh, endowment that um, is is uh, overseen, and 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 the, the proceeds uh, every year are, are are donated to the community, uh, and and you're going to hear a little bit about uh, what's what's happening there. I met Russ. Um, on the, uh, the year of my retirement. Um, I'm not gonna tell you how many years ago because I'm, it's too many, uh, but um, I kept hearing about this guy. And so I had the time, so I, I, I heard he was a neighbor. So we went to breakfast and, and um, uh, that led to his asking me to join uh, uh, HealthSpark as a community member and then a board member. And, but more importantly, Uh, We've become real colleagues. He's been a real great advisor to me. In fact, a lot of what I'm doing, including this podcast, I can trace right back to advice uh, Russ gave me at that first breakfast uh, we had together. Uh, So I I am greatly indebted to him. And through that, I got involved in HealthSpark and met Warren and have developed a relationship with Warren, not just as a fellow board member, but we have breakfast from time to time. And he's brought me into Awareness of, of some things that he's doing, which has expanded my my understanding of uh, racial justice and so forth. So so um, that's my introduction. I could go on and on, but I guess you want me to. <laughs> I guess you want me to start here. So I'm going to sure. start um, with you, uh, uh, Warren. Um, uh, and and was as we often do with these podcasts, we like to go back to the beginning, to childhood, to your family. Um, uh, tell us a bit about how you were, were raised in your family environment, where you where you grew up and what it was like, and uh, how those experiences may have impacted what you're doing today, particularly in the area of uh, you know, racial and social justice.
0: Sure, sure. I appreciate that. Uh, and thank you to both you, John and Kiva, for uh, having me and Russ here uh, tonight. I'm mm-hmm. terribly ecstatic about that. Uh, so, yeah, if we go back to the beginning, I was uh, born in Philadelphia, born and raised. Uh, I joke sometimes and say the only difference between me and Will Smith is when I got in trouble. I didn't have a rich auntie and uncle in California to go to. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was born in uh, with, what some people would call a lower middle class neighborhood. Um, uh, my, my family, it was myself, my brother, my mom and dad. Um, my dad was a blue collar worker. Uh, my mother uh, didn't work until I was in probably second grade, as far as I can mm-hmm. remember. Uh, so we lived off of one income for quite some time. Uh, both of my parents have a high school education, um, mm-hmm. and you know we lived in uh, you know a row home and, and enjoyed all the pleasures of the city and all the challenges of the city as well. Mm-hmm uh and it, it has made me who i am today and i will tell you my parents instilled in my brother and i that education was mm-hmm. the critical factor of how you uh, make something of yourself and, I, and that was the wording that often was used by my parents in the house if you want to make something of your yourself you have to mm-hmm. get a good education that was taught to me not only by my parents but others in the neighborhood My brother and I were both athletes growing up, so um, my parents instilled in us that if you wanted to play sports, you had to do well in school. So we both did well in school because we wanted to play sports. Um, So we were able to engage with coaches and and teachers and other people who also instilled that value in me and my brother that education was the critical factor for us changing the trajectory of our life. And and that's kind of the story um of, of where it all started and, and why, you know education is so important to me and why, you know, I do this work um, in terms of education, uh, social justice, uh, and, and things of that nature. So yeah. yeah.
2: So when did you first have an awareness that um, racial justice was uh, of race in itself, as it impacted you?
0: Yeah, I would say, you know, the interesting part, um, you know, I told you my dad was a blue collar worker, Um, where it first came up for me, uh, because I lived in, you know, the neighborhoods in Philadelphia at that time were very segregated. Uh, I can tell you at that time, there were probably four at most white families in our neighborhood. Um, And, you know, there was one white family in the school that I went to. Uh, but my dad, being a blue collar worker and, and at the time, you know, as my mom was not working, uh, ends were not meeting, as they say. So my dad took on a second job, a side hustle, as they would say, as a landscaper. And mm-hmm. so he landscaped all of uh, apartment complexes and doctor's offices out on the main line of Philadelphia. Um, and of course, my brother and I were his workers. Um, So, uh, on Saturday mornings during the school year, we journeyed out to the main line and we landscaped these properties. And it was an eye-opening experience for me to see how we lived uh, in Philadelphia um, and then how folks on the main line lived who were largely at that time, you know, white. Um, And that was where it became evident to me that something was different between my context and the context of of folks who were on the main line. Um, Mm. And while we never were uh, mistreated by the individuals that my dad worked for in the main line, it was clear that um, we were different. Um, And that's where it kind of first hit me. And I would say I might've been all of about
1: seven or eight years old when it really, Mm. when it really hit me. Wow. Wow, I, I really you know, every time I hear someone talk about their observation and the first time they can uh, relate to you know experiencing some some form of racial justice or you know, racial inequity, I always I kind of some su- surmise it under this term of uh, optics of oppression. And it's not until we kind of venture out of you know, like you and your brother ventured out of your neighborhood and to the mainline, and that's when your optics kind of change, but up until then, there was some sense of normalcy because that's all you knew in that environment. And um, it really changes your perspective on life. So I really appreciate you sharing um, your experience from um, what Elijah Anderson in his book, code switching, switching talks about, he talks about, you know, he did an observational study of walking down uh, Germantown Avenue and he just, he just documented the changes that he saw. And I think that, I think that, uh, you know, when our optics of oppression hits us, uh, it really, it really sticks with us. And you mentioned seven years old, so thank you for sharing that, Warren. And 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 Russ, what about you? Same question for you. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your parents, the values that was instilled in you as a child. And you know, when it, when did your optics of oppression or social injustice? When did that resonate for you? How did that, how did that come <laughs> Probably about?
3: Probably last week. Mm. Um, certainly late in life. Um, yeah. So like Warren, I too was born in Philadelphia at a hospital that no longer exists. Uh, But I was raised as the third generation to live and be raised in Cheltenham Township. Mm -hmm. Um, So my father's mother uh, was raised in Melrose Park and she and her husband then uh, bought a house in 1930 in Wincote uh the height of the depression um and that house was one block from where my mother's family also Mm. lived so they were raised literally a block apart never like never liked each other never were in the same circles um my father went off to the second world war. He, um, he, he served as in the army. Um, and uh, after uh, returning from the army, he went to work for what was the family business. Mm. And um, it lasted about six or seven months. Mm. And it was my father's mother's family. And she had a brother who was 12 years older than she was and um, the brother decided that the family business wasn't big enough for both sides of the family. And so my father was asked to leave. Mm. And my father was not college educated, but now, you know, had started a family, uh, had married my mother and had, you know, built a house in Glenside, which is where I was raised. And so he went to work uh, in the insurance industry, and was just a basic guy who learned how to do that work as a salesperson, and and made a made a good life uh, for himself. It was a struggle along the way for sure, yeah. um, but he never went to school, and I, and it was sort of um, a regret, uh, which was really interesting because his father had a PhD um, from. University of Pennsylvania. Uh, He was was a Wharton grad. Um, So education wasn't the same way that Warren described uh, in his family. My mother was a college graduate. She went to the College of William & Mary in Williamsburg. Um, But there was always that kind of um, emphasis on being prepared for life because you never know.
1: Mm.
3: And here, my father thought, you know, he was just going to be in the family business and that mm-hmm. didn't come to play at a very early point in his life. So, um, raised in Cheltenham uh, at the time, uh, the school, the public school was about 85, 90% Jewish um, mm. population, very, very few people of color. Uh, Ironically, I remember the one person of color in my kindergarten class whose last name uh, was White. Um, Well, ironic, right? (laughs) Um, So a good old Arthur uh, was just a member of the class and nobody really recognized him as a person of color. He was just a member of the class. Um, And when we did things, he was just there. There, there, there was no conscious inclusion, exclusion. It was just there. Um, I went on to college at Muhlenberg uh, in Allentown and then later on went to uh, get my degree in social work at the University of Pennsylvania. And in those days, um, there was a mandatory course that all students had to take and it was called mm-hmm. institutional racism. Mm. It was team taught. Uh, by a professor, um, uh, two professors, one of whom was white, one of whom was black. That was intentional. There were four Mm -hmm. four classes. Each one of them had a different um, pair. Um, And having been raised in a near all white community, um, it was a very interesting exposure to institutionalized racism. And the tenor of the first year course was all, about how white people had created this terrible environment for people of color. And it was our responsibility. And there was a lot of blame and finger pointing in those classes. Mm. Uh, It was an ugly uh, two semesters at Penn. Um, The second year, it flipped. Um, The conversation, again, run by uh, an African-American professor and a white uh, counterpart um really started to look at solutions and Mm. um, that was sort of the beginning uh, of building awareness so Lou carter was the um african-american um faculty person in the second year i still remember him to this day when he said to me you know russ you've earned your degree you're going to go out and practice and he says but make no mistake he said, "Your degree only means that you've earned the right to start learning." Mm. And I thought, I, like oh, "I just worked really hard, and I just got the <laughs> degree, and it cost me a lot yeah. of money." And you know, now I'm just mm. starting. Um, but that was the beginning. I was um, had my field placement for those two years in a public child welfare agency in Bucks County, again, mm. a pretty white community. Um, The the disadvantaged populations were almost entirely white, and um, a subset of that was the military, because there were two um, military um, active stations, uh, one in Johnsville, one in Willow Grove. Um, And and interestingly, there was a lot of child abuse uh, that took place in those uh, installations. Mm -hmm. But... um, I started to build my career in, in public child welfare. I was there for about 17 years altogether, wow. um, got hired. And, and so my background is very eclectic. I left uh, government service, went to work for a small entrepreneurial startup company, uh, left there, went to work for the Pew Charitable Trusts. Uh, and I'll hook back with that story later, but um. Did some consulting, worked for a large multinational uh, insurance company, actually two of them, uh, and then ultimately um, came to HealthSpark. So, it's been an interesting time. Lots of opportunities to meet people. Um, growing up as a kid, you know, I was one of those folks who tended to not be involved in sports, uh, except I was in the marching band. So, you know, that was, mm-hmm. that was the way to get involved with sports. Right. Um, but I was on the newspaper at, in high school, again, in college, uh, lots of uh, music and theater and those kinds of things preoccupied, you know, leisure time. Yeah. And the other thing that about my growing up uh, was that my parents were pretty comfortable in retrospect uh, to others. So we had a second home. Um mm. And the day after school let out in Cheltenham, we left. uh, And we went to the Poconos and we didn't come home till the day before school started. So I had a whole second group of friends. And um, those folks were from New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and Ohio and Maryland. Um, They were all, had one thing in common. They were all members of the Lutheran church. Mm. Um, And so Faith in those days, you know, had a centering perspective, but we were all white people, and we were all kind of living together, uh, somewhat isolated from the rest of the world and its realities. And my yeah. social work job was the only thing that kind of pulled me out.
1: Yeah, mm. I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna circle back to that for a look because I see, I, I, I see, there's something that we have in common. I, I'm also a social worker. And I understand you got your MSW from Temple. I'm a Temple Owl too.
3: No, 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 I'm a Penn.
1: Oh, Penn, right, Yep, Penn, I'm sorry. Um, And you have your MSW, right? So if you think about the work that, you know, social workers are involved in, particularly child welfare, you know, I I can only imagine some of the injustices that you saw working in that arena. Could you share with us a, a time where you know, you you were you were presented with some type of social injustice and, and what was that like for you? How did how did how did your education as a, a, a social worker prepare you for, for that moment?
3: You know, I, I wish I could tell you that the injustices were recognized when they were happening. Mm. Um, but they really weren't. Um, as I said, I was there for 17 years. I, uh, in the course of that time, was involved with more than 150 adoptions. Wow. Um, And in order to have an adoption, uh, you either have a voluntary relinquishment of parental rights or you involuntarily go to court and terminate people's rights against their will. Um, I litigated over 100 of those cases. Wow. Um, And at the time, uh, it all, it was thought that people, these kids would be far better off in a nurturing home uh, than they would be living with parents who were abusive, who were um, suffering from from chronic alcoholism and drug addiction and other kinds of plights like that. Um, I got pretty active in the adoption community. And one of the first things that we did was start advocating for the rights of African-American children to be adopted by African-American parents. Mm -hmm. And the parents didn't have to be the traditional couple. Mm. Um, So that was my first, like, oh, let's let's get out there a little bit. Let's think a little bit differently. Let's think about culture. Let's think about heritage. Let's think about customs and the like. So that was maybe one of my first areas where I started to get a little bit more aware of, of the implications of my work. Yeah. But I have to say that it was years later after I left the field, that looking back, um the laws, the procedures that took place in the court hearings, the mm-hmm. way in which the judges managed the hearings um, were terribly traumatizing mm-hmm. and You know, child welfare and child abuse in in itself is traumatizing. But, you know, when you you just add more to it and you actually separate children from their birth families, um, it's a lifelong injury. Mm -hmm. And I started to talk about that in my work and say, let's just think about what we do and the implications. You know, it seems right at the moment, but can we at least ask ourselves what the alternative might be? And so those were some of the early beginnings of, of kind of wow. social justice issues.
1: Yeah, so that- I, I thank you thank you for sharing that, I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I know the, the research on racial matching, particularly in child welfare is evident that when, when children are matched in homes where the culture uh, is, uh, resembles their racial background, their cultural background, the placement tends to last longer. So I, I, I wanna just put that out there and it's, it's good that you, you advocated for that because the research really supports um, that notion of racial, racial matching when it comes to out-of-home placements.
2: So I think yeah. that's a natural segue to a question uh, or a discussion with Warren. Mm. One of the things I didn't know about Warren uh, when I first met him, but came to know uh, after we got together and compared notes and so forth, is his uh, strong interest in um, uh, not only education uh, but also um, another aspect of of our system with handling children, uh, those that have been through the um,
0: foster care system.
2: Foster care, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and so, uh, tell tell us how you got interested in that area. And what you're doing at what you've done at Kutztown and are planning to do at Kutztown in that regard with the with the students there.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, you know, through, you know, I talked about my experience going out to the main line and, and how that, you know, kind of was my first exposure. Um, and you know, after that time, you know, it was not like I look for these things, but you know, things just kept happening, right? Where you'd realize like, wait a minute, something's different here, right? Like, wait a minute, that just happened and it didn't feel right. I'm not 100% sure as a kid why. And all throughout my life that kind of continued to happen. And I've kind of developed a philosophy that if you help the most marginalized population, then all populations benefit, right? Um, And so when I got Uh, here at Cookstown University, I met a gentleman um, who runs eight social service agencies, uh, one of which is an organization called Child Promise, and we got together and started talking about this concept of helping marginalized uh, students succeed and what that would do for all of our populations uh, here at the university. Um, And through the generosity of Child Promise, we started a program for foster care youth uh, here at Cookstown University. Uh, The statistics are staggering when it comes to foster care youth in college. Um, Mm. 70% of foster care youth desire to go to college. There's no, I would say nationally norm statistic, but there's different statistics. So on average, only 11% or less actually go to college. And then we know that out of them, less than 50 percent, and actually there's some numbers that suggest less than 25 percent of the ones that go to college actually complete their degree. So through that, um, we got together and crafted this program called Providing Resources and Opportunities for Future Standouts, uh, or profs as we call it, that turns that that those statistics on 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 their head. So we started with nine students in 2017. Six of those nine students have graduated. Three of those uh, initial that initial cohort of nine are in graduate school right now. So wow. we're changing that paradigm, and we're doing it by applying the principles of social justice. Right. So making sure that uh, we have an equity mindset that these students, uh, you know, some of whom have attended 12 different schools during their K through 12 education, and one young person in the program who had been in five different high schools, right? So, Mm -hmm. and all the trauma that you talked about from the court system earlier, um, all of that, they come to our university with that. And so we apply principles of social justice to say, and equity to say, what do they need that maybe another student does not? And we give that to them. So we give them weekly coaching sessions. Uh, We give them um, mandatory workshops around um, time management and things of that nature. Because when you're in the system, right, the system does everything for you. Right, Everything's there for you and they, they transport you at a certain time to your appointments and things of that nature. So Uh, And then, of course, we're dealing with um, social justice from a homeless perspective, right? These are students, if they come to us out of the foster care system, they're out of the foster care system. So when we have breaks, summer break, winter break, they do not have anywhere to go. So we make sure that they're housed here on campus uh, over breaks. Uh, We give them some financial resources to support them over those breaks. Uh, and then we do, we, we kind of fill in the gap, uh, as much as we can where parents would. So, uh, you know, you go home for spring break, you know, in my case, mom cooked my favorite meal, you know, that type of stuff. They took me out to, you know, one of my favorite restaurants. And so we do that for our students, right? So we will take them out to a restaurant over break, or we'll take them on an overnight trip to the beach or to DC or somewhere that they want to experience. Um, And again, we've grown that program to 30 students and those students are now being successful, uh, graduating, as I said, and some are actually going on to grad school, some are in gainful employment. Uh, And if you talk to the students, um, much like I said earlier about my home life and what my parents said to me about education changing the trajectory of my life. When you talk to these students and when they graduate and they're they gainfully employed or in graduate school, they say the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Wow, I did not know that education would do all of this for me. Where would I be without Kutztown University getting me a college degree uh, and this program supporting me when I did not have the support? Um, so, so that's kind of the, that, that story. Um, and I'm, again, I'm thankful for the generosity of, of, child promise. Uh, and that's, a has local connections to, um, Montgomery County, uh, with folks like Dr. Charles Kwan, uh, and, uh, pastor Charles Quan I should say, and, uh, Dr. Nathaniel Williams. So, um,
2: one follow-up Kiva before. Yeah. You, um, this doctor uh Nathaniel williams who is the uh ceo of child promise that uh, warren mentioned um is also now a member of our board at healthspark and um and russ uh told me a story i want you to relate the story russ I'll tee t- it up for you when you met dr williams at uh, along with uh dr hilton um uh you asked a question about why Dr. Hilton kept referring to his good friend Dr. Williams as Dr. Williams as opposed to Nate or Nathaniel. You want to tell that story because and and what you what you uh, gleaned from that?
3: Yeah, it's a it's a simple, you know, quick story, but. Um... I think it, it goes to the roots of what Warren was sharing earlier—that education was presented to him as an opportunity, uh, and one where he worked very hard and uh, through a lot of sacrifice uh, earned a degree, and and went on and earned a terminal degree. You know, he's Dr. Warren Hilton, um, and similarly, uh, Dr. Williams, who. Uh, shared with me that he is a product of the foster care system himself, um, is somebody who I think learned at an early age that education was a path forward and out. Um, and he's, he's an academic um, addict. Uh, yeah. in, in the sense that he has so many degrees that there's not enough letters in the alphabet. You know, we have to him. call him
2: doctor, doctor, doctor. <laughs> yeah. uh,
3: and in fact, when I was asking him about Spark board service, I you know, was uh, intrusive enough to ask the, the pointed question. So you're pursuing another doctorate and I believe it's at UCLA. Um, do you have enough time to devote to being a good board member? at HealthSpark. And he says, all right, just we'll make the time. And I said, oh, okay. Um, But I think that especially within the African-American community, there is a level of respect that's afforded to somebody to acknowledge the hard work that they've put into Mm -hmm. earning a place in the community that is kind of that normalized, uh, you know, you made it kind of thing. Um, so if you carry the title of doctor, there's a certain social status that's afforded to you. And, and so that, that's what I learned in terms of that quick story which I guess I made way too long, but.
0: And, and, and if I may, I'll, I'll just build upon that. It is exactly what Russ said, that respect. Um, but also it is about um, the next generation in generation so yeah. when you know i'm with dr williams and he's on campus or we're somewhere and there's other students That's students true. around and they hear dr williams that engenders to them i just told you you know we have several of our our students who the statistics are daunting even getting a bachelor's degree or an associate mm-hmm. degree that are now in grad school so when they hear dr williams or dr hilton that signals to them, right? That's right. Yeah. wait a minute, I, I can do more than just a bachelor's degree. That was my original dream, but if I wanted more, I now know that I could do that, especially in Dr. Williams's case, um, you know, being a product of the foster care system um, and and you know being able to you know go to college, get the degrees and, and the multiple doctorates. Right. Um, you know, that signals to that next generation that it is a possibility for me. So while it is respect for me, when I say Dr. Williams, it's certainly respect for him and his hard work. Uh, We both know that it's also about the others around us who may be listening, saying, oh, now I realize that's something that Mm -hmm. I can do.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you shared that. That um that backstory on that, Warren, because I think you're right. I think most kids, you know, I work with kids, you know, African American kids in the urban community for, for a very long time. And, you know, when you think about the term doctor, most of them are thinking medical doctor. <laughs> and, and that's the problem, that's most of the time that when you hit when they hear that term, it's someone that may not may not actually look like them from a racial standpoint. So I think you're right. I think. Just, just modeling modeling it and letting them hear it. So they're hearing and seeing the potential uh, in terms of who they can can become and what they can accomplish uh, when they stay uh, dedicated to their academic pursuit. So I really like the fact that you mentioned that you, you also you, you, they see you, but they also hear you, you know, humbly respect. The other gentleman for for his accomplishments, and and that's a that's just a really powerful tool of empowerment for our young people. So I, I thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and go God, ahead, John. No, no, mm-hmm. go ahead. no, I was I was going to say, um, so uh, Russ, um, John tells me that you've been at HealthSpark for for quite some time, and I I wanted to uh, see, uh, you know, just ask you to share a little bit about how did you get there? I know you shared a little bit about your eclectic uh, experiences in different uh, arenas of focus, but how did you wind up at Hellspark and, and what has kept you there over the years? And then when you think about uh, the topic of racial and social justice, why is that subject so compelling to you personally? Uh,
3: so the short story about how I got to Hellspark is a story of networks and privilege. So I had the opportunity to work at the Pew Charitable Trusts. I was a national program officer in their largest division at the time, which was Health and Human Services. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you will, I had that pedigree of somebody who understood foundation and philanthropic work. Right. As John said, you know, uh, when hospitals were sold, um, oftentimes the solution to what to do with the proceeds was to create a foundation. And in the North Penn area, there were a few board members who decided that they wanted to be on the board of that foundation, but none of them knew what foundations, how they worked and what they did. So they went out. Uh, one of the board members had a um, a daughter who was a recruiting, uh, executive recruiter. Yeah. And she happened to call uh a colleague of mine who said, oh, you need to talk to Russ. He he fills all your check marks. He has foundation experience. He lives in the community. Um, he, he's a social worker. He understands health and human services. And so th- the rest is, you know, kind of the history of um of being hired. Um, so that's how I how I came uh to Health Spark. The the opportunity to work in philanthropy is just an amazing privilege. And um, not only do you have the opportunity to meet a myriad of really thoughtful, hardworking people, um, but you have the opportunity to learn so much about people, about systems, about organizations, Uh, about movements and and the like. And so HealthSpark has afforded me the opportunity to participate in a a large variety of national forums, um, to work with my colleagues in philanthropy and learn about different things over a period of time. So in the early years, it was, you know, the excitement of building something, of, beginning to see some return on the investment of, in, of trying to partner in the community and do something that made somebody's life better. Um, which again, you know, that's that's what draw, drew me to social work in the first place. And even though my track in social work was always about administration uh, and not treatment, um, the motivation was still there, like make something better. So Around uh, the end of the first 10 years is really when racial uh, equity and social justice started to come into the forefront. Um, And there were a number of things that were happening at HealthSpark at that time. The original founding board members were all gone. Um, I had had the opportunity to build an entirely new board. um, And that board was beginning to be a little bit more diversified Um, which wasn't a big challenge uh, since I think we had one person of color on the board when I was hired. Um, But with that also came a deeper understanding of the dynamics in the community and some real true meaningful relationships were at that point after 10 years starting to congeal. I'd always made a point of doing nothing that was going to not be... um, embraced by local county government because I recognized at the end of the day that the safety net system that we focus our investing in is predominantly supported by local county government taxpayers' dollars, right, and by the contracts that local county government makes with these providers. And so, you know, I could have had a great idea, but if the county wasn't going to buy into it, it was a waste of our money. Uh, And it was a waste of the effort and time. So building those partnerships uh, was something else that was pretty exciting. And again, you got to meet new people and bring new ideas. One of the, so hearkening back to the days of Pew, um, that my, my boss there said, you know, never accept anything on face value. Just because that's the way it's done today, doesn't mean that's the way it has to be. People get ingrained. And if you don't, one of your roles is to ask questions. And so I brought that into my job at HealthSpark and I started to ask a lot of questions. Sometimes in retrospect, I guess I wasn't as respectful as I should have been in asking those questions. Maybe I had a little edge to them or a little bit of uh, attitude or or like whatever.
1: You were Um, were, were passionately presenting your point of view.
3: arguing a point of view, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it was always with the best of intentions. And, you know, I made a lot of friendships and I, and I was able to, to build a lot of synergy. And one of those absolutely quintessential moments was when I met with a leader in the county government who had been there for a really long time. And I said to her, you know, we're in the midst of a worldwide financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And the number of people who are experiencing homelessness here in Montgomery County is growing. And yet your department isn't serving anybody new. And the waiting lists are getting longer and longer. The provider community isn't getting any money to expand programs or services. In fact, they don't even wanna discharge the people that they have. To make room for new people. And I said, the system seems a little broken. Like, mm. what's this all about? And um, I guess if I had asked those questions or had those conversations with some people, nothing would have ever happened. But this woman said to me, You know, I have an MBA. I've been here for a really long time. I want to go out with a bang. So, what do you have in mind? And I said, let's shake the tree and see, Mm. we can figure out how to serve more people with the same amount of money. Let's ask our providers if they can reimagine what they would do with the folks that they serve. It was a four year effort before it actually came together. HealthSpark invested in a bunch of piloting and research and small scale stuff to just get more and more and more buy-in. But one of the early aha moments that really kind of came from all of this work um, was the realization that the people who were being served in Montgomery County's housing and homeless service system were people of color. And almost without exception, the people who were providing the services came from uh, mainstream faith organizations who employed white people as their employees and leaders.
2: Yeah.
3: And so one of the questions was, well, why can't we get people in and why can't we get people out? Started to take on a different context. Maybe we're not listening to what people really need because it seemed like we had a pretty good system. You know, it was a comprehensive set of services. And in in the early days, it was sort of like, okay, if you're homeless, when when we can find a bed for you, we'll bring you in. But we really didn't figure out what we did with you until that point. And then after we had you go through the shelter program, we would send you to the transitional housing program where you would stay for two years. Wow. And if you could get your act together, then we would graduate you out of the transitional housing program, because by that time you would have learned mm. how to manage your life and you wouldn't be homeless. Wow! Now, I'm on purpose using a bit of hyperbole here, and I don't mean to uh, convey any disrespect for all the people who were working in, sure. that, in that day and age. But that's really what the system was. Yeah. And so it was a 30-day shelter system. And most people were in shelter for 120 days or more. It was a two-year maximum time in transitional housing. And most people were there for three or four or five years. We had one yeah. person who was there for 10. Wow. Um, and so we were doing four people. As Warren was saying a few minutes ago about the foster care system. You know, the system did everything for you. Yeah. Right. We weren't helping people to self-actualize and tell us what they wanted in their lives. We were telling them what they should want and what they needed to do in order to be offered assistance.
1: Wow. I'm, I'm familiar. I'm somewhat familiar with the homeless system. In um, Pennsylvania, more specifically Philadelphia, did some consulting, some training, consulting work with some of the homeless service providers in the city, and I think there's been some progress in this with oh, yeah. some of the some of the federal regulations and changes through HUD, the Housing and Urban Development. And i mean, sure you're probably familiar with the whole Rapid Rehousing um, um, uh, Program, moving people into, and now they're really. Um, to, to stay in, in, in shelters is, is 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 short. It's thirty days, and they're skipping the transitional phase and getting folks into permanent permanent supportive housing now
3: housing, because
1: yeah. because yeah. just like you said, the research and, all, and and all of that just really uh it's it's kind of like parentified programming, if you so to speak, and so here's it doesn't what help keeps me and house So yeah. I
3: said to my board, "This system's broken, guys." Yeah, and you know. We, are, we focus the majority of our resources right here in Montgomery County. And what I need is to do a national scan of best practice
0: mm-hmm. and
3: then find out what we can import here to make our system different. My board of directors by that time gave me that runway mm-hmm. to do that kind of work. And so we hired a California-based research firm to deliver to us what was going on nationally as best practices. And we looked at uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Columbus, Ohio, and Alameda County, California. The community felt that the California-based program was the most replicable Mm. to Montgomery County. So my board gave me money and I took a cohort of people for one week and went to California. Wow to learn from the folks out there, what it is that they did and how they did it and how they built uh, a a groundswell of support in the provider community and the funder community and the government and at the national level. And the long and the short of it is that we brought back the best of what we found in California. We played around and tinkered with it. And a couple of years later, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania was acknowledged by the Secretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development as one of the leading communities in the country. Wow. Leading housing transformation. Mm. What a privilege that my board gave to me and to our community to be able to do that work. That's awesome. We have similarly done system transformation work in food security. A whole different story, a whole nother day. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's what keeps me at HealthSpark.
1: Well, you're, a, you're, a, you're definitely a change agent. I, I tell you just hearing, because that's what it is. I mean, most of the time when you hear these inequities, it's mostly embedded in the system, the design of the system. And so when, you, when, when you're able to take a look at that system and make those changes to make, make it more act, uh, equitable or e- uh, equal in terms of access and affordability, or just changing a person's life trajectory—that's where it takes solid leadership. And you know, I really appreciate um, you sharing that story and leading the charge to really reform that system. Because if the system doesn't change, the service delivery will remain the same, and people will stay stagn- stagnated in their growth. So that and has,
3: government that's, pays for performance, right?
1: Correct. And yeah, performance based. Contract. Mm-hmm. What
3: hoops you need to go through? Yes. So Montgomery County, when we first started this, was one of the top 10 rated communities in the entire country by HUD. Wow. And the reason that it was rated so high is because we fi- completed all of our reports accurately and on time.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. That's what HUD cared
3: about in those years. They care the about people moving in and out of the system. yeah.
1: yeah. So um, yeah, outputs so, versus outcomes. We could go all day about this, but yeah, that's okay. that's awesome. Go ahead, John. There,
2: there. Literally, there are many other examples of Health Spark's approach uh, under uh, this leadership to um, to do system change. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to focus on one uh, aspect of that that is evolving as we speak, um, and. Um, Going to take us back, the three of us—not you, Kiva—you weren't there—but a governance committee meeting, maybe four years ago now, where we uh, started addressing our mission and vision, and uh, as it related to social and racial justice. And um, you know, where Russ got all these all this information from all around the country, what other organizations were doing, and we all looked at that and and we we boiled it down to to a sentence or two uh in our mission and i'll I'll never forget this because it's really influenced me um uh, we were talking about what would be our organizational commitment and how we would how we would characterize that and then hold it out to the community and um but we we also um Looked at what would be our personal responsibility. It's easy to hide behind the organization, but what did we as individuals? How did we? We could buy all this, but what do we need to do? And we put that into the to the mission statement. For me, it was an extremely powerful moment. I think the three of us were all there. I see you nodding, Warren. And um, this was before the you know the events of um, you know two summers ago. When when this became you know uh, awareness you know much broader awareness, but it it it's, it was a start for me anyway of a journey that has now led to uh, I think a very um, transformative uh, set of things that we're doing and and Warren and could you could you profile some of those things particularly the Black Justice Fund that that is and how that's evolving?
0: Yeah, <clears throat> and you know I I, I and uh, Russ jump in please uh, you know this. You know, I applaud Russ, um, and I know Russ gives the board a lot of credit, but I I must say I applaud Russ um, taking these steps. You know, when Russ and I met, um, we had a conversation about some of the work that I was doing and how we did it. Um, And we had this conversation about, you know, we're always going to be on this journey of doing the work around social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, um, you know, how do we make that a part of our DNA? Right. Um, and, and Russ really bought into that and, and really saw that when we had that conversation. So that's a part of who we are at HealthSpark, right? We take those risks. It's about, you know, our organizational commitment and our personal commitment. And that has played out in, in a number of ways. Um, you know, Our long-term commitment to the, um, the safety net system in the county, uh, making sure that safety net system is shored up, uh, doing it based upon you know, data and research and best practices uh, in a way that honors uh, the folks that are being served by the safety net, right? Um, and doing it in a collaborative way. So uh, when we have our communities of practice, we bring all of, you know, is anybody who wants to be there from the safety net system together, we don't set the agenda, right? They set the agenda, kind of going back to what, what Russ was saying about asking the people who are doing the work, asking the people who you're serving, what it is that is needed. And that's made all the the difference in the work that we have done at HealthSpark and I think it has gained us uh, even more credibility in the community because they know when they see HealthSpark coming that it is not HealthSpark coming to tell the community what you need, it is HealthSpark coming to say, we wanna be a part of a solution that the community is creating. Um, And a part of that with the Frank E. Boston uh, Black Justice Fund Has grown out of that, where we are now saying, how can we invest and support uh, community based organizations, entrepreneurs, et cetera, who uh, some people might call them social entrepreneurs, but whatever the the term would be, um, how do we support those organizations that are led by Black individuals, right? Uh, Frankie Boston was a physician who was very instrumental in starting the local hospital. Um, that, um, you know, as we pointed out earlier, uh, when, when the nonprofit was sold that uh, we became uh, established. Um, and so, you know, those are the type of things that we do at HealthSpark, taking those healthy risks so that the community benefits. And it, it has become ingrained in our DNA. Social justice is ingrained in our DNA. So it was no surprise to me, John, when that conversation at the governance committee happened and we started talking about, well, that's great. We're saying this is about the organization, but what are we as the you know board members personally going to commit to doing, right? Because that makes all the difference in, in the world. So um, there's many more examples that we could probably give you of, of the ways that HealthSpark has, has kind of had that uh, methodology if you will in terms of not only organizational but personal commitment but doing in a way that honors the community
2: yeah and, and that that's translated into other things um, uh, how we invest our money how we leverage our money for social justice it's uh, it, it's 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 embedded the entire organization and I, I believe it's going to pay great dividends for the community because they'll observe what we're doing and it'll translate into other nonprofits that we work with and support. And um, it'll have a ripple effect. It'll have a really a ripple effect throughout the county. Um, so I wanted to also go back to um, this, this subject of education. Yeah. And um, I can't help but ask about um, critical race theory. I mean, it's coming up. It came up in the in the confirmation hearings. Um, uh, as an educator, uh, as someone who is well educated, Russ, but as an educator, Warren, how do you view that and the implications of it for our country? And and um, could you just dig into that a little bit?
0: Yeah, it, it certainly is a, a, a difficult conversation that's being had about critical race theory. And I would say no no matter how you feel about it, um, in education, in particular higher education, that's what we're all about, right? We are about looking at theories, looking at history, looking at whatever it is, uh, no matter what field you are, and having that opportunity to critically think about it Uh, formulate your thoughts about what you've analyzed and communicate that in a way that is respectful um, to whoever you're you're communicating with and around. And and I think for me, um, the conversation is not so much about critical race theory. It's about whether or not I see the other person that I'm talking to as a human being, right? Mm. There's all kinds of theories that are out there. And, you know, as, as far as the, you know, when the first theory was ever created, right, somebody I'm sure disagreed with it. So it's not about for me, whether you agree or disagree with critical race theory, it's whether or not we can have a conversation about it in a way where I can see you as a hu- human being, you can see me as a human being, and I can respect the humanity in you and you can respect the humanity in me. And we can have that conversation. Now, whether we agree or not at the end of that conversation is a totally different story and we don't have to always agree right at the end of the story Um, but for me when you talk about education that's what we're all about right we are about having these conversations you know analyzing things uh doing the research on things then having the 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 dialogue uh, around those things um and formulating new ideas and more ideas and more theories and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, it, it really, for me, you know, the difficulty I see about what the conversations, the, the, those extreme conversations about critical race theory, it, it, I, don't, I, don't, I don't ask the question, why, don't, why, does it, why does somebody not like it or like it? I ask the question, can we talk about it in a way that we can respect each other at the end of the day. And just like anything else, right? Just like when I was a kid and I went outside to play and me and my best friend disagreed with something, at the end of the day, we still were best friends, right? So at the end of the day, if whoever's talking about critical race theory, can can we still be human beings and recognize each other at the end of the day? and, and and you know be human beings, um, and so that's kind of more important to me. Whether somebody agrees with critical race theory or not, it, it's really the difficulty that I see around it is kind of the the polarizing conversations that are having. A bit. Well, it's not even conversations, right? It's people talking at each other. It's not a dialogue. So yeah, so that's what it is, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my mind, right?
2: How about so, you, Russ?
3: I I think it's really an interesting question, John, and thank you for bringing it up. Um, Probably is no surprise to Keva, uh, social workers think about starting where people are um, on a personal level. And when we look at community organizing, we recognize that the community is only as strong as the, the composition of everybody who's in the community. And so I find CRT or critical race theory to be a divisive term that doesn't help me with my work. Um, I prefer to talk about making a personal connection, respecting somebody's lived experience and the context in which it's playing itself out and trying to figure out ways in which community can be embraced to, so that all boats float to a higher level, okay? So as every, every family, as every individual can thrive in a community. And I think that's what Warren, Warren was just saying. See, see everyone as a person. See as everyone, you know, who brings, you know, heritage and culture and language uh, and food, um, you know, to the table. That when we, when we can respect that and enjoy it uh, and learn how to enjoy it, I think that's when communities are, you know, more cohesive, where they come together, where the quality of life is is much, much better. So um, I think that my professors at Penn would love love my answer because it's all about social work principle.
2: <laughs> that's funny. So I I think about those are interesting perspectives. When I hear the term, I think about academic freedom and lifelong learning. And and anything that promotes learning to me is a good thing. And learning is about, some some learning's hard. It's hard to go back and look at our history. If you're a white person, it's hard to go back and look at the history. I'm reading Cast, the book Cast right now, and it's really hard to read, but I'm learning things that I, and and why, why someone would not want to learn is uh, there's just too some people I guess some pe- places in our society so people just have too many barriers, too many built-in barriers that they can't break through. But that's that that's and I'm 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 really concerned about it because it is a red herring too. I I think the term has now had its own meeting politically and everything else, which is unfortunate. Just like uh, um, you know some other terms that are painted about. Um, Kiva, and I think what's your? I think,
0: um, if I if I may, I think yeah, Russ sure. hit on something that's critical: meeting with people where they are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, um, you're not gonna change somebody's mind, right, by pounding them over the head with something, mm-hmm. right? Meet them where they are. I will tell you, um, the the you know that is me in a nutshell. You know, I don't care what your background is. You know, race, sexual orientation, religion, anything like that. I want to get to know you and develop a relationship with you as an individual and as a human being. And then we can we can talk about all these Mm -hmm. things. Um and my eyes are often open to things when I can go into a, a conversation just meeting that person where they are. Um so to your point, John, you know, the learning happens um not not around uh you know whether we agree or disagree it's just hey you know i want to see you as a human being and Mm -hmm. tell me how you feel about this Mm -hmm. and i'll tell you how i feel about it and let's talk about why you feel about that like let's talk about why i feel about it and let's let's have this this conversation Uh, because at the end of the day what what i think whether you agree or disagree with critical race theory Everybody wants to be acknowledged as a human being and, and, you know, at its basic core, right? We all want to be able to live with whatever our definition of successful lives are.
3: You know, you're you're making me want to ask a question if if that's allowed in this
2: format. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs)
3: Through the Black Justice Fund, uh, we pulled together uh, leaders from the African-American community to help inform what this fund should be, how it should be marketed, um, what its goals might be in its early years, and and Mm -hmm. similar types of questions. And and one of the things that they um, recommended and which has been incorporated into the initial uh, round of grant making is the value of storytelling and You know, I've learned over the years that, you know, that is a fundamental component in the African-American community uh, for a variety of different reasons, which are not important so much tonight to, to, you know, call out, but just that I think that what Warren was just saying is that if you get to know somebody and you the way you do that is through storytelling, just like Mm -hmm. we're doing tonight. Where was I born? You know, who were my parents? Like, you know, what Mm -hmm. did I do? There's stories. And they build a persona that someone can connect with or wants to not connect with, right? And the real opportunity is to help people tell their stories in ways that engage people. And if you will, promote that learning moment, but it's not marketed as education or learning. It's more about relationship building and neighborliness and collaboration and partnering in the business community and all of those kinds of operationalizing kind of verbs that I think are are the fundamental building blocks of healing in a community. Mm. So we're hoping that we receive 37 applications. Uh, I've read them all as of this afternoon. There are several that are hoping to get funded to advance storytelling. And they have a variety of strategies Mm. and a variety of groups that they're hoping storytelling work will be advanced. Women and girls, returning citizens, elderly people, intergenerational folk, um, people who are in, um, in, in recovery, um, their stories uh, are important to tell too. And so th- that's what I think might be an ingredient in advancing the cohesiveness and the pulling the very polarized community back together i wish it would happen quickly i think it's going to be a long time in coming but i think when those stories will help people understand each other as Warren was just sharing
2: mm. well we are Coming near the end of our a lot of time, yeah. And um, I'd like to ask uh, both of you uh, in this area of racial and social justice, uh, who who is your role model? Who who would be? Who who do you admire? It could be a person none of us know. It could be a public figure. Who comes to mind? Top of mind, Warren.
0: Wow. Um, you know, I I will go back to my parents. Um, mm. And I know that sometimes sounds cliche, but I really will. Um, you know, I didn't, when you asked me, born and raised, I didn't go into their background very much, um, how they were born and raised. Both of them uh, were born and raised in Jim Crow South. Mm. And, you know, my mother's, Family could never own land. Um, my dad's family did own land, um, but it was it was kind of a you know an impoverished situation, um, and they they faced a lot of racial uh, racism, racial discrimination, a lot of those things. Um, Even to the point, um, you know, and I learned this when I was actually a teenager. Um, You know, I I never met my dad's father um, because they told me he died when my dad was very young. I learned in my teenage years that he was actually um, the equivalent of what people might call murdered. He was ran off the road um, and uh, ended up through all of you know, the, the segregated principles in the South at that time could have, you know, been saved, uh, mended up, surgery and so forth. Um, but all of the the things that happened along the way from, you know, the ambulance, you know, coming, taking him to, to the hospital and, uh, you know, you had to take him to this hospital and not that hospital. And then where's his insurance card and, and all of mm-hmm. that. So... To, to, to know, and, and, and quite frankly, the person who did it, um, you know, never was, you know, prosecuted or anything happened to them and, and, and stayed in the community. And my dad lived in that community, knew this person. Um, and both my mother and my father never taught my brother and I to hate anybody, mm-hmm. right? They easily could have took their experiences and said these are people that treated us this way you should really hate them they never taught us that they taught us to love all people including people that despitefully used you Uh, and, and that to me as I you know kind of matured in my 20s you don't realize it when you're a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or 15-year-old or you know even an 18-year-old, but when you get out on your own, it, it for me, was very impactful to know hmm. that these are people who went through such traumatic experiences um, and they never taught my brother and I to hate anybody. And um, I think it is the reason why today that I have you know friends and great colleagues from all across the spectrum right spectrum. you know all races all religions all socioeconomic statuses all political views um and i really admire them for that and i and i would not be the person that i am today um if it was not for them so i i look up to them and admire them um for their stance on, you know, how they viewed racism
2: and and Mm -hmm.
0: how to respond to social injustice. So Mm. Russ, how
2: about you? That's great. Thanks, Warren. Thank thank you you for that. that. Yeah. What about you, Russ? I
3: I wish I had the the deep history story that Warren just shared. Um, But I don't think that the inspiration for the work that I do really came from family. Um, I think it's really come from my professional life. And uh, uh, Warren knows one of the people in my life that uh, we we enjoy together, and that's Dr. Marla Gold. Um, Marla is an infectious disease doc by training but uh, has a public health um, core to her and, her life that she leads and the work that she directs uh, in a myriad of different ways really kind of began to help me understand uh, the value that different folk and different communities really contribute to the mosaic uh, of community. And then uh, once again, HealthSpark gave me an opportunity to participate in the National Racial Equity Learning Collaborative which was uh, about 25 of us from across the country. I was the only CEO in the group. I was the only uh, person from the Mid-Atlantic region in this group. Um, But I got a chance to meet a couple of people through that experience, which is now uh, almost five years ago. Um, So one of the fellows that I met is now the president and CEO of Grantmakers for Effective Organizations. His name is Marcus Walton. Uh, he's, he's a pretty interesting guy, you can Google him and, and listen to him, he's he's Not just heard him. Um, And then I think uh, both Warren, you and John uh, happened to meet Amanda Andre, who is the Executive Director of Funders and uh, Homelessness, and HealthSpark invited her to come to our community and talk with one of our communities of practice that I think you both attended. Mm-hmm. Um she is a person with lived experience. Uh, she is a strong advocate uh, for racial and social justice work. Um, and and she she lives it personally as well as professionally. She was one of the first persons that I ever really kind of got to know uh, beyond just a professional relationship because if these learning communities we would go off to some, not very exotic places. I think we went to Milwaukee and we went to I don't know Chicago or whatever. But we we were never in really like fine, lovely places that most foundation places take you to. Um, but sitting at a bar with her, you know, sitting next to her for dinner, uh, doing some of the exercises together that that learning collaborative provided to us gave me an opportunity to really see how her life influenced her work, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and to see that in action was just inspiring, and I I carry it with me all the time. We don't talk often, but we do exchange emails from time to time. Um, Every once in a while, there's a quick phone call or whatever, but those are the folks who I think have really kind of driven in the last several years the work that I do, and and why I think that this work is so important to pursue. Mm
1: -hmm. Good. Wow. That's awesome. So, you know, we, 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 this podcast is really um, a platform kind of like for us to discuss these issues. And, and for me, it's really a, a platform of, of hope. Like, you know, I hope that when people listen to this, then, you know, there's some transformation in their thinking and their behavior um, just in terms of wanting to make the world a better place. Wanting to uh, be able to share their personal story, because I agree um, that we learn through storytelling, and we all have a story to tell, regardless of our diverse uh, social identities. but We all have a story to tell, and I'm, I'm hopeful every time I speak to someone. Um, and I'm kind of like what uh, Warren, you know, I was raised in a Christian background, and I was taught like love is like the like the platform of uh, <laughs> all engagement regardless of how you treat it, you supposed to quote, unquote, love thy neighbor. And that my grandmother really instilled that in me. And I think over the years, if I, as I grew older and, and was exposed to difference, which I think is a, is a critical piece to uh, raise one awareness, is just exposure to different, different people, um, you know, different uh, neighborhoods, different foods, different, you know, social settings to be able to learn and always put yourself uh, as a, in a teachable moment to learn about yourself as well as others in their experiences, so I'm hopeful. So I, I wanted to just, you know hopeful that these podcasts is, is doing great work. And we shared earlier that we had an officer uh, on the previous podcast, uh, Eric Doherty. Uh, he was uh, elevated. You know, his position was elevated to chief um, diversity officer for his police uh, for his police department which I think is a huge uh, thing, particularly in the climate that we're in today. So I wanted to close by asking the two of you, is like, what do you hope, um, you know, in terms of the problems that are facing in in our society today? What's your hope for achieving social and and racial equity and justice? What do you you look to to see change within the coming years or decades to come? And uh, Russ, let's start with you. I
3: I alluded to it a minute ago. My hope is the polarization that exists in this country at the moment begins to fade away Mm -hmm. uh, and that there is more an understanding about the value of diversity, um, the contributions that people make to communities, to their congregations, if you will, their faith-oriented, to their businesses to their social clubs whatever we've just become so polarized and friendships have been fractured and I'm just looking for better times better times which I think come through a more amicable understanding about the value of
1: humanity wow thank you for that what about you sir
0: yeah, I, I, I think my hope is going back to what I said earlier, that um, we, can, we can develop spaces and create space where we can have the dialogue, see each other as human beings. And if we disagree at the end of the day, um, you know what, we're still a part of, you know, whatever it is, you know, we're still a part of HealthSpark if we disagree on our board if you know you disagree in your family you're still a part of that family you're still loved there's still a place for you um and I think if if we can model that and replicate that um then I think you know that's my hope that 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 will you know create a a society that is is more socially just
1: Yeah. yeah John what about you I wouldn't want us to wrap up without giving you the opportunity to share
2: well then yep, you, yep. you can you can uh take us out. Uh to me it's it's um grassroots. It's it's um people doing little things. And when you when you uh, over time accumulate those things, it can it can be power you you can it can lead to powerful change. I, I don't I don't have a lot of faith that it's that that systematic racism is going to be solved by our politi- our current political system.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, I think it's going to have to uh, bubble up from grassroots. Um, I'm hopeful that the change in complexion of our country, that we're on, a, we're on a trajectory, uh, to have a, a really diverse population, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that, that will have an impact. Um, and so, so, uh, it's, it's, it's gonna take a lot of patience, however, but I, but I also take hope in, um, you know, when, when, when um, a couple of years ago, John Meacham came out with a book, he went through some of the most difficult times in our country's history, and we got through them all. Believe it or not, there were more difficult times than what we're going through now, like the Civil mm. War, you know? Uh, and, and we got through them and and so the the curve, you know, is what is it that 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 phrase from uh, Martin Luther King, the the um, curve of time bends towards justice. It's mm-hmm. it's it the curve, but it's up and down and up and down. But if you look at the mm-hmm. curve, it goes away. So I, I'm hopeful based upon our past history, but a lot of just good good Americans doing little things mm-hmm. over time will have it. And that's where I find my hope.
1: Awesome. I think that's a really good place for us to, to wrap things up. I think I want to share. Uh, thank you, uh, both Russ and Warren, for sharing your perspectives, your vulnerability, your transparency, sharing your stories. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, this like, you know, like the title says, this is a race and we're all still running it. Some of us, some of us, some of us are jogging, some of us are walking. Uh, but I think we're all moving towards uh, what John's, what all of you said on this call to a better place uh for society and a, and a better america for all so thank you all out there for listening for those who are watching us on our youtube channel we thank you for that please make sure that you subscribe uh if you like what you hear and, and join us for our next episode so thank you so much uh and let's continue these uh, courageous conversations as we uh you know move towards another step towards the race to social justice thank you everybody
2: thank you warren thank you Russ.
0: thank you Thank you, Russ.